0: Welcome to a special edition of Mwango Spaces this uh, Monday evening. I want to really uh, dig deep into the IMF reports that were released on Kenya last week. It's been a major course of debate since they were released, I think, on Thursday night, Kenyan time. And since then, we've had like lots of discussion around almost all the issues that they raised uh, and even the Treasury had to respond to some of the issues that were raised. So we have our two able speakers who have spent the week and the weekend, reading a lot about these things. They come from the macro and kind of economics. Alone. They're going to help us dissect some of the items that were raised. Maybe a quick intro. I know very few people don't know you guys, but maybe, Julian's and then, Chachin, you can introduce yourself briefly, and then we can get started.
1: Thank you, Eric, and thank you so much to Mwango Capital for organizing this very critical conversation. I'm Boko Julian's is my name. I work with the Nation Media Group, where I support uh, NTV as well as the Business Daily and Daily Nation. The Happy to be here.
2: Thank you, Julian. Churchill. Thanks, Eric. And thanks, Wango, for the invite. Uh, my name is Sacha Lugutu. I'm currently working with ISA Group, but specifically with the investment team based in Kenya, By look at a number of African economists happy to who discuss this topic. Let's get started with the high-level view. What preceded uh,
0: the fact that uh, they published some reports and the meeting that was uh, happening on 17th? And maybe, Julian, you have done quite a bit of thread, so you can give a bit of context on this item. IMF executive board meetings and what happened that, uh, during that such time. Thanks, Eric.
1: So in early 2021, Kenya entered a program with the IMF. And a program essentially means then you are receiving financing. You are in a bit of the macroeconomic pressure. It could be structural. It could be related to balance of payments. And therefore, in return, you have some conditions within which you have to play with revenue targets, etc. So periodically, there are reviews which take place. And uh, so far, we have had six reviews. And we had the, the meetings between the authorities and the staff of IMF happening late last year. And what normally happens is on the proposals which come forward, then they are taken to the IMF executive board, which then assesses and takes its decision in terms of a number of critical measures around the, the program. Remember, it's a review. So essentially you are checking some boxes as to how you are performing on the program. And maybe in due course, I shall be fleshing out some of the things which stood out for me from a performance of the program perspective.
0: Thank hey, Julian. Churchill, why do we need IMF? I think that's a key question a lot of people
2: are asking. I can do these things alone. Maybe we can give backgrounds to that. I think your rates are critical question, and I remember if I take us back to the start of this particular program, this famous hashtag, IMF Stop Lending Kenya Loan, and it trended for a week, and I remember it was coming at a point whereby there were the spring meetings between the IMF and the World Bank, so Kenyans were all over social media pages. At that point, basically, the Kenyans, because I'm speaking to a larger Kenyan audience, they were not connecting the fact that uh, these disbursements, majorly from the multilateral lenders but they're not able to connect the impact on the ground. When we are looking at the IMF program, we've had some variants to the initial program. There's been some additional disbursements, what you call augmentation of access, There's also been an inclusion of a new facility. Initially, it was a double-twin facility called the Extended Fund Facility and the Extended Credit Facility. Right now, we also have a more climate-oriented facility, the Resilience and Sustainability Facility. But now to the point is that we're looking at it within the fiscal years. We are in a fiscal year which started last July and it's ending June this year. So there are financing gaps which has to be funded either from domestic sources and also from external sources. So the IMF comes in at least to plug some of the deficits. And to your question, at the start of the budget year, there were some estimated laws after the sixth review and the seventh review. The sixth review was completed in November, which was the focus of this executive board meeting. And then there is an ex- expected seventh review, which will be completed by around May the about of this year. So all these reviews are within the current financial year, and now they are expected to have some disbursements. So that's how the IMF's financing plugs in, at least to be able to offset some of the deficits in any given fiscal year. And obviously, we've talked about augmentation of access, so they flagged that because of the tight financing conditions, basically Kenya is not able to access uh, a diverse external financing sources, be it on the eurobond major majorly. So because of that, so there's what you call a financing gap that potentially might arise. And that has now necessitated the Kenyan authorities, this is now the National Treasury, now requesting for some additional funding, which was not by the start of this financial year. So basically that's within the context of IMF now financing to Kenya in the current budget year. Thanks, Churchill, for that context. So maybe, Julius,
0: now we can dig into the reports that came out of the sixth review. What are some of the things that stood out for you? Maybe before we dig into some of them, maybe you can give us a broad overview on some of the things that stood out for you, Julia. Thanks, Eric. So first of all is to appreciate that the sixth review was quite laden. By
1: way of activity so we had the sixth review of the ecf and eff and then we also we had the first review of the resilience and sustainability facility which is targeted towards climate change and also we had the article four conversations which is in uh, very broad terms a deep dive into the question of the macro fundamentals of an economy and maybe just to disabuse the notion that we are here to do a hatchet job on the government i think by and large the sixth review has revealed quite some it shoots from a program performance standpoint. And what stood out for me, if you look at something like the anti-money laundering and the finance, IMF indicates the June 2023 structural benchmark was met. And maybe just to give some context, when you talk about the structural benchmark, then we are looking at reform measures which are not really quantifiable but are crucial when it comes to realization of the end game. We also had the review of the fuel pricing mechanism, which was a June 2023 benchmark as well, which was met. And then we also had the special audit of the Supplementary budgets, that is Article 223 of the Constitution, that was also met within the timeline specified, and also the Pending Bills Verification Committee. So there are a number of areas where the IMF is telling us look, guys, you seem to be getting this thing right. However, the IMF clearly indicates that we seem to be struggling with the question around domestic revenue mobilization, and that is the quantitative program measure. And one of the biggest challenges we have there is that because in FY in financial year 2022-23, which ended in June last year, we did miss our revenue targets. So the performance rate was 95.3%, so there was a missing gap there. And that meant we had carryovers coming into the current financial year, that is 2023-24. And that is why, if you read this staff report, it is quite heavy on taxation and the proposals which are coming by way of the medium-term revenue strategy. We could flesh that out in due time. And I think for me, this report... What is more important is not what is said explicitly, is what is said by way of undertones. Because in two particular areas, I think the IMF is basically telling us that uh, considering we have extended this program by 10 months, you should should have been winding up at this point. We think you are punching below capacity on taxation. And secondly, on the restructuring of state-owned enterprises. So those two things stood out for me, Eric, the take-home is let's not focus so much on what is said explicitly. There are so many undertones in that report.
0: Churchill, what are your key takeaways before you come back to Julian's to dig deep into those two things that he's highlighted there?
2: I think for me, the first one is the fact that with the augmentation, basically we triggered an exceptional access. So let me just break it down a bit. Think of it of a member who is in a circle and then you have your circle shares and your deposits. So that's how even the IMA financing sort of works and look, or all the member countries who are within the IMF ecosystem, they have what you call respective quotas. So our quota, basically, it entitled us to, in any given year, this is the limit that you are supposed to meet. And also cumulatively, this is the amount that you're supposed to get. So in terms of the annual limit access, that's around 200% of a quarter. And in terms of the cumulative access, that's around 600%. As I started off, I said that the initial program was an extended fund facility and an extended credit facility. So that is the program that you started in April 2021. Along the course, you've added a resilience sustainability facility. But back then in April, we also had a facility. This was within the COVID period. So all the countries received some one-off disbursements by the IMF. So cumulatively, and if you look at what has been disbursed so far, remember during this current program, we have had six reviews within the extended fund facility and the extended credit facility. So let me just call it, this is the first program that we had. So we are looking at a scenario whereby with the increased financing, we may surpass that annual 200% 100% quarter for the current year. So that's one. And also cumulatively will surpass that. And what is coming out with all this is that why would the government go to strange source to be able to exceed its limit? It's because of the tighter financing conditions in the international market. They're not able to access the eurobonds in good time. Although right now, what we are seeing with other markets, potentially this year, we could see a return to the international markets by sub-Saharan African issuers. Point is that with this $2 billion maturity that is coming in, that has led to increased multilateral financing from the IMF and also other development partners, if I may say it that way. The other thing that I picked out, which was not quite in terms of Julian's thoughts on the revenue. So basically, we are implementing a medium-term revenue strategy. So this is from the way it has been packaged it will be implemented in two phases. So the first phase will start in the next financial year, which is starting in June, July this year, all the way to June 2027. And then the other will take off from July 2028 all the way to June 2030. But if I look at some of these uh, targets, the benchmark was at the end of the last financial year, what was our ordinary revenue to GDP? That was around 14.3%. So the target is that by the end of June 2027, we should be at 20%. Uh, That's the metric that they're looking at. But just looking at some of the numbers uh, that were presented at the point of this review and also the draft budget policy statement, I think we are still punching below our weight. And what that means is that the medium-term revenue strategy will come with some aggressive measures. We haven't seen more through the numbers. We, We have an idea what kind of tax proposals will be in the next three fiscal years that you have that uh, overview idea. But in terms of the implementation and more so as to be able to reach that 20% uh, by June 2020, 2027, I think the government will have to tighten all the measures so that they might be able to meet that target. And specifically, remember June 2027 will just be two months before the elections. So it might even find itself in a cut-22 situation. Do we reach this 20% target by that point? Or should we re- scale back some of the tax measures that might be implemented in the next three years because it's an electionary period? So I think those are some of the salient issues that came out in the report that probably might need to be highlighted in the course of the discussions. Thanks. I'll come back to you
0: on that. So maybe, Julius, you've tackled a lot the MTRS. So maybe you can give a bit of uh, context on what Kenyans can expect. And uh, for those who are listening in, it's very important to follow Julian's threads. They are very informative in terms of following up discussions around tax and revenues and all that, collections. So he has really good threads, and we'll share some of them uh, within the course of the discussion. So maybe, Julian, so we can start with the first point on uh, missed revenue targets and all that means in terms of a of the MTRs that they just released and what that means as, the, as we head into the Finance Bill 2024 that is coming up later this year.
1: The medium-term revenue strategy is a document which gives us visibility of the tax measures and targets that we can anticipate over the next three financial years. And that was first made public by the National Treasury sometime in Q3 last year. We have since seen the updated version. We wait for... How it goes forward. But within the context of the IMF report, so what the IMF does is to tell us it is fully behind one, the MTRS, that's a medium-term revenue strategy, and more importantly, the measures proposes for finance bill 2024. That is a finance bill we are expecting to be tabled this year in the build-up to the budget for June 2024. So what are some of those measures? If you look at, for example, direct taxes. One of the things we expect is a bit of a change, far as the progressivity, as they have called it, of our tax bans are concerned, that is in pay as you earn. How will that look like? We can only guess as of now, because we already saw Finance Act 2023 changed the top tax rate from 30 to 35%. My expectations is that we are likely to see more bans. Essentially, we'll be going back to the pre-COVID tax bans. There is also the proposal around uh, a tweak as far as the corporate income tax is concerned, from 30% coming to about 28%. And of course, the MTRS also tells us the goal is to harmonize the top pay rate with the corporate income tax rate. Indirect taxes is where the meat is, uh, but just to run through some of the proposals. One of the issues being highlighted there is that we will see the rate of value added tax coming down from 16 to 15 percent, and the eligibility threshold will be revised upwards from 5 million to 8 million. Currently, if you're to be registered for VAT, your annual turnover must be 5 million. They want to bump it up to about 8 million and the reasoning behind it must be around the rollout of e eatings because now KRA has proper visibility of almost everyone. Maybe one thing I can highlight is uh, around excise tax. We know that uh, one, Kenya is scouting for a way to have an optimal excise rate, which I think is a step in the right direction, but more importantly, Uh, something like alcohol will now be taxed based on alcoholic content. Currently we only have the ad valorem and the specific rate. We wait to see how that will play out. So if Kenyans thought that Finance Act 2023 had caused so much disturbance and so much uncertainty, it looks like Finance Act 2024 will just be layering further on that. And so there, there are a raft of issues which we can walk through, but in the interest of time, let me stop there, Eric.
0: Julian, there is a bit of time. Maybe you can give us maybe two or three things that stand out for you in terms of the rough measures that it proposes for 2024.
1: Yeah, so for 2024, one of the things which stands out for me is that it proposes that we shall see the Treasury rolling out a framework for the reintroduction of minimum tax. Why this is of interest is because minimum tax came in through Finance Act 2020. And at the time, the argument that was being leveled by the National Treasury was that there are many entities in this country which find two sets of books and we need visibility of their numbers. And one way to net them, including those who are reporting losses, is minimum tax. So it was deemed unconstitutional by the high court. One reason was tabled was because it was discriminating. We were told it was discriminating against loss-making companies. And so for me, I think that is something which we should really keep our eye on as far as minimum tax is concerned. Another issue which I think stands out for me is the whole discussion around the changes we should expect in rental income tax because Finance Act 23 moved it from 10% to 7.5%. Now we are told it will be harmonized with the corporate income tax rate. It looks like the 7.5% was simply a sweetener to bring compliance to a much higher level. So there are uh, very sticky issues within the medium-term revenue strategy. Clearly, they are speaking to the issues which the IMF is raising because IMF is telling us in the staff report, you're very good at tweaking tax rates and taking administrative measures, but you don't widen your tax base wide enough and fast enough. So I think the MTRS specifically wants to address those issues, Eric.
0: We are at almost at the 30 minute marks. If you want to be part of the discussion and you want to ask questions or to the two able gentlemen here, you can do one of uh, three things. So one just below the pinned tweets. You yeah. can just write your questions there and then we'll be able to check them and ask them to the two gentlemen here. And then you can also DM us your questions if you have any, or you can also request to speak, but to request to speak mostly we'd prefer if you have a, a name that you can recognize and a picture, at least uh, so as you don't get trolls here. But in the meantime, I uh, will get back to Churchill and then Churchill will give us a few remarks on, especially on the augmentation aspect of it and uh, some of the other things that you may have noted in the IMF reports. And maybe you can break down for people a bit about what augmentation usually means uh, for some of these programs. There are different programs um, under this uh, IMF uh, in terms of when they funds. the different programs that this money is coming to. And one of the new ones is about climate uh, change and all. Maybe so you can describe a bit for
2: Monanichi to understand uh, what are these different pockets and where are they are going to? Thanks, Eric. Let me just build up from where Julian's left. I think he's done some heavy lifting on the tax issues in as far as medium-term revenue strategy is coming in. But what I also noted was the, I think in this IMF report stated that there are some specific, some tax laws that were tabled in parliament. That is around 15th of December. That's the period that Parliament had gone on long recess. They're coming back around that week for fifteenth of February. So probably there is some tax laws that have been tabled in Parliament or they were put in taken to Parliament. But because of the fact that Parliament has been on recess, we still don't have some sight of that. But the whole idea is that on the back of the underperformance in tax revenue over the course of the last financial year, which ended in June last year, there has been some, that has now necessitated some, what do we call some corrective measures from national treasury, at least to be able to ensure that the tax revenue is back on trend. But having said that, the numbers are at the uh, end of December. So that's the first six months of the current financial year, which came off uh, last week, suggests that tax revenue will underperform the target that was set within the context of what you call quantitative performance criteria. So that's some measures that IMF monitors to ensure that the government or national treasuries sticks to its course in some of the key metrics that they are tracking. But that also led to what we call the non uh, waiver of non-observance of uh, some of the criteria. So some of us saw that particular phrase, but that is in regards that because the next set of reviews the seventh review which will be done around may of this year we'll be looking at some of the key performance as at the end of december so one of them is now the tax revenue so i think by and large and also what has been telegraphed within the imf report is that we could see another supplementary budget too at least which may ensure that spending is directed towards critical areas and also to find other avenues that could also increase the tax revenues. So I think that's the context that we are in right now within the current financial year, as we now make that hope to start implementing the MTRS. But then again, if you look at the bigger picture, because whatever happens in tax has implications to debt. We have a regime which has been, during the campaign period, the communication of the rhetoric was that there'll be less of debt and more of taxes. So that's pretty much what has come. To toe right now but in the context of the public debt there's also the debt and let's not lose sight of the fact that the pfm amendment act sometime in october last year amended the public debt from a numerical metric of 10 trillion right now to a debt anchor of 55 percent of public debt to gdp but in net present terms right now if you look at the stock of the public debt the numbers that we have is at end of september We serviced the GDP, cumulative GDP up until 12 months, the four quarters ending September last year, debt to GDP is around 72%. But if you look at it in present value terms, that 72% is estimated at around 68%. So that 68%, based on the legislative amendments to the PFM Act, is expected to at least trend lower to 55% by June 2029. So that's within the context. So, if we are looking at a scenario whereby Treasury will have to increase taxes over the next fiscal years, and in a way it might reduce reliance to debt, which I'm still skeptical about, we might be able to meet that debt anchor earlier than that. Estimates is that even the rough estimates uh, from the documents I've seen is that's the trajectory that by June 2029 20, we'll be able to meet that. But I think uh, if we get the MTRS, Correct, we may be able to meet that debt anchor in at least uh, by June, 2028. On the issues around augmentation, basically this is some of the requests that the authorities, the National Treasury and also CBK to an extent acting as the Kenyan authorities, make to the IMF within the context of an ongoing IMF program. So we are at a scenario whereby when we started the program, the initial amount to be dispersed from April, 2021, June, 2024, the program initially was a 38 month program. So we are looking at something by market values at that point was around $2.3 billion. Remember that the IMF disburses moneys in what we call special drawing rights. So it's like an international reserve asset. So this special doing, you convert it to dollars, and also we can convert it to whatever currency. And now in the Kenyan context, we convert it to Kenyan shillings. So what happens is that if there's a need, probably there's a balance of payment crisis that the authorities are foreseeing, they may now be able to augment access we've had three augmentations of access within the current program. The first one was in December, 2021. So that was a one-off augmentation. The second one was in July, 2023. But what happened is the augmentation was spread out all the way to, to April 2025. So next year. So what we are seeing with the final and the third augmentation that has been announced was disbursed after the sixth review, which happened last year and which has been disbursed some I think last week. And also the upcoming review. And that what we are seeing is in line to be able to ensure that the government has additional monies so as to be able to retire the maturing two point two billion dollars. Hopefully I have answered you. I think you also mentioned around the RSF, which programs are there. So there are a number of programs, some IMF programs are on concessional loans. I've talked about extended fund facility and extended credit facility. So extended credit facility is basically on concessional terms. The interest rate is around 0%. There's a grace period of five and a half years. And then you start payment at the end of uh, 5.5 years, all the way to the 10th year. The extended fund facility has a slightly higher interest rate. So that uh, has one and a half years and payments starts after that all the way to the 10th year. We have RSS, Resilience and Sustainability Facility. So this was on the back of some of the countries had received these additional SDRs. Now they are reallocating their portions, which they may not need to the least developed countries. So what we have seen is now IMF created this particular facility and the main agenda is now pegged to the climate financing. So that's where RSF has come in. So 12 countries have already tapped into this RSF facility, resilience and sustainability facility, There a number of reforms that also needs to be done. We remember that holiday that we had around November or October, they about planting trees all geared towards enhancing our climate. So things to do with carbon pricing, that will be part of the next set of reforms, issues to do with carbon pricing. I think within the context of our medium-term review strategy, there was a, a proposed introduction of a motor vehicle circulation tax, which uh, ideally is now to be able to reduce carbon emission. But also from a global front, we have what you call, for lack of a better word, the North, which are the highest emitters, now they will have to at least make payments for their high contributions of emissions and now find uh, some some facilities so as to be able to reallocate that to developed countries, which we are least emitters. So that's basically what's the ongoing discourse at the global arena. But now it's increasingly finding its way within the IMF financing. Let me take a pause at this point. Back to you, Eric. Thank you so much, Churchill. Julian, there are a couple of tax
0: questions that have come in, now, which I I would want you to tackle. And one of them is about the what is double-click, especially on the issue of broadening the tax base. Uh, Justin is asking. How is the solution to broadening the tax base, more taxes, uh, referring to what you said a bit earlier, in this case, I would want you to maybe explain to people what broadening the tax base is and the context, especially of the IMF report and what that means. So going forward, And there are a couple of things I noted in the, in the MTRS that may come into the a finance bill 2024, which have to do with broadening the tax base. That's one. And then second one was from Dixon, who was asking, isn't a reduction on corporate tax and VAT counterintuitive to increasing revenues? I think that's uh, a question he has in terms of, should we be focusing really on reducing corporate tax or should we just focus maybe on just reducing something consumption taxes like VAT? So over to you, Julian, on that and more. Let me start
1: with the first question around uh, broadening the tax base. So. Put it in very practical terms, data from KRA tells us we have about uh, 6.8 million registered taxpayers on its roll. That's where it starts. Of this amount, we're told only about half are active taxpayers, active now. So Mm -hmm. the same way you have in energy, your installed capacity, and then effective installed capacity, which you can bank on. We have just about half of the 6.8 or 7 million are taxpayers who are active. This is an, an economy which has about 19 million voters. This is an economy which has 30 million active MPESA users. I realize they are not unique users. So just to clarify, yes, they are not unique, but still 30M versus about 3M tells you something. So the headache that the government faces is how to widen the tax net and how precisely to bring in the much talked about informal economy into the tax rate. And the government is not only targeting increasing rates. If you read, especially from Finance Act 2022, actually from 2018, all the way up to Finance Act 2023, because it is in Finance Act 2018 where we first had the introduction of presumptive tax in this country. Presumptive tax was geared towards roping in the informal sector into the tax base. The whole idea was when you go for your single business permit from your county government, they should relay that information to KRA and you should pay a proportion of it as your one-off tax. For some reason, it never worked. MTRS proposes the reintroduction of presumptive tax alongside many others. So that is one. The second one is that Finance Act 2023 amended Section 16 of the Income Tax Act to introduce Paragraph C. And what that did was to provide that Anytime you want to go and claim deductible expenses to CARE, they must be supported by chronically generated tax invoices, the famous e tim So what that does is to ensure that CARE widens its radar of the transactions going on in the economy. And one of the key provisions in the e tims is that it should capture stock levels. That Today, if I sold socks, for instance, to Eric Mokaya, KRA will be able to see Mokaya bought this bale of socks from Jewelands. Mokaya certainly is not putting on 100 socks in a given period. What is he doing with them? So KRA comes to you and they start asking you, what are you doing with this stock? Have you sold it? If you sold them, have you declared your income? Some of the proposals in the MTRS which seek to widen the tax base, one is the proposal to slap a one-off withholding tax on all import. Now, that one, if you read it in fine line, it's simply targeting all these guys who deal in the Mitumba products, all these guys who deal in this electronic, all of them. The idea is to bring into the tax net everyone who is in the informal space. And the National Treasury tells us there is a potential taxable base in the informal economy worth 2.8 trillion shillings. So there are a number of measures being proposed, and I think it's a conversation Kenyans need to engage in very actively because of the implications it has. There is a proposal for... The consolidation of cargo once it comes into the country, this started last year. There was so much hue and cry. We had stockouts of smartphones in the streets of Nairobi. It's because there was a shift in how your cargo comes into the country and how it is assessed by caring. You deconsolidate it, everything is assessed in terms of its value and you pay the equivalent by way of tax. So there are many administrative measures being taken to widen the tax base. When it comes to the issue of the proposed reduction in corporate income tax and VAT. Why they are a big deal is that on the corporate income tax reduction, Kenya does not live in an island. We have just seen the tax proposals coming from Rwanda. They want to take their corporate income tax rate to as low as 20%. You could decide to remain at 30% and remain increasingly uncompetitive and all the businesses go to your neighboring countries. And I think that is where Kenya is coming from. That look, we used to be the dominant economy in this region. We clearly no longer are. Our neighbors have risen up. And they are punching significantly we need to be competitive so that is the conversation which has come into towards driving the corporate income tax rate to come lower still on corporate income tax one of the key proposals in the mtrs is to address this issue of preferential rates are there companies which are given preferential rates because of the nature of their operation can we rationalize that can we reduce the number of companies enjoying that so as we reduce the rate then we are beefing up the collection so there's a trade-off there which Kenyans need to take note of and be very keen about. On value-added tax, I think for a very long time, we have debated the question of VAT and should we benchmark against our regional peers or not. Initially, we thought it would be going to 18%. They're surprising us by telling us we want to bring it to 15%. I don't think it's a very material reduction. But I guess you might remember that the spirit that came in when President Mwaki Baki first came into office, he's the one who brought VAT from 18 to 16%. It looks like now there's a measure to take it lower. And it's because indirect taxes have become the source of so much social angst in the recent past especially when we had the standard rating of VAT on petroleum products. So I think here the government is really just trying to avoid as much noise as we had in the Finance Bill and Finance Act 2023 when it comes to the current cycle of Finance Bill and Act 2024. And hence the proposal from 16 to 15%. If you asked me, it is not so significant, but I guess in an environment where we are on constraints, it's important to show that we are having some balance across uh, the various considerations. Eric, back to you. Thank you, Julian.
2: Uh, Chachin, do you have anything to add there? I think Julian has pretty much covered it as far as uh, tax revenue and uh, some of the proposals therein are concerned. Quick one for you. There would be about uh, the efficacy of some of these programs. Uh, there's a
0: lot of concern, especially among Kenyans, to do with expenditure. So there's always the focus of like the focus a bit too much on revenue raising targets and not so much on maybe cutting down on expenditure and all. What do you tell Kenyans and uh, IMF programs and their relationships maybe
2: tar- to expenditure cut? So just to reiterate, one of the conditions under the current program was on fiscal consolidation. By fiscal consolidation is to ensure that we reduce that level of uh, borrowing and then as a percentage of GDP. Uh, But now, how do we reduce that? The emphasis, and even in the course of this discussion, has been on revenue-raising measures. So the fiscal consolidation has been more towards revenue-raising measures as opposed to pending reduction. I think that has been pretty much the overarching theme within the current program. But having said that, I think we may not lose sight of the fact that we need to have some efficiency within the public spending. And what is coming out clearly is that there are a number of parastatal or what we call state-owned agencies reforms around there, at least to ensure that, yes, we may dole out some shillings towards this parastatal or this commercial entity, but what kind of returns are we be able to get after that? So that's pretty much has been the emphasis from the IMF and also some of the structural reforms that have been genius mentioned about the structural benchmarks within the context of the previous review, they were met with some significant delays. And what I picked out was those who was touching on the state-owned or reforms around parastatals or within how to be able to ensure that some of uh, these uh, parastatals get back to efficiency level. We've been talking about Kenya Power. We have seen some progress around governance issues. And there's a proposed structural benchmark that by end of April, we could also see some options around restructuring strategies around Kenya Airways. So I think that's a bit positive, but I think I, I might err on the side of caution because we have had some cut stop measures in the past within the context of the IMF. So probably we may be a bit cautious, but at least we, we-, we are looking at some opportunity or some measures being done by the or by the authorities to be able to ensure that there's some reforms. I think in this light also, there's been efforts around privatization. There's that financial evaluation and also focus of ensuring that we have some oversight on what's happening within the state, semi-autonomous government agencies, what you call parastatals or certain agencies, and also the county governments. Remember, in the context of how we look at our Shiskas, I think primarily has been on the national government. That's what we call the ministries, departments, and agencies, and also on the county governments. But you never have sight of what's happening in some of these other government entities, the parastatals, how we call it in Kenya. So there's a plan of now unifying the whole public sector balance sheet so that you can have some view of what's happening over there. There are some contingent liabilities, particularly within the parastatals, that needs to be brought back uh, at least so that we can be able to have some overview of that. And all that is in line of bringing some efficiency within the government. Some positives is that the privatization hopefully might kick off, at least in the course of this year. There could be some teething problems around that, but at least within the context of the current IMF program, I think the government might now be able to ensure that there's some focus around that area. The other plus that is coming out is now on beneficial ownerships. We have contractors, we have suppliers who have been delivering to the government, but we really don't have some oversight as to who are the beneficial owner- owners. We are starting to see some progress within the public procurement uh, processes. And that's the end game of all that is now to be able to bring some efficiency. So I think uh, those are positive steps. It's only that now on the implementation, Tends to have some execution risks. Julius, maybe back to you on the same topic. Another
0: question that is has been fronted by mobile addiction. Maybe having a bit too much of a focus on your, your revenue raising and not so much on expenditure cutting. Do you have any comments on that? And especially as regards the IMF program. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things which the
1: IMF has currently spoken about is the Treasury Single Account, the TSA, and it's not surprising that just a week before the IMF released its staff report, then we had the cabinet approving. The setup and operationalization of the treasury single account as per the PFM Act providing in Kenya. I think it goes a long way in trying to ensure that we clean up the management of our cash flows and the visibility of our books at the public sector level. I think some questions still prevail in terms of the structuring of it. Will it be centralized? Will it be hybrid? what sort of kinks will either model present to this country. We know that when this was rolled out in Tanzania, there was quite a bit of chaos in terms of just the settlement of public sector expenses, which are falling due. The Treasury needs to really work on its communication around this. And one of the things which we also anticipate, that then this will help us to push the envelope further, is a conversation around transitioning the entire public sector from cash accounting to accrual accounting. We've been speaking about it for years. I know some states on the the prices are already on that model of accounting, but the bulk still face a challenge are under on the cash accounting model. So I think that issue is being addressed. But also I want to throw a challenge to us as Kenyans. Whenever we get into the budget cycle, Kenyans will focus largely on the finance bill and finance act, and for understandable reasons. That's why, that's why you feel the most pinched, because of course taxes are coming your way. But we have the appropriations bill. Because a budget has two lines. We have the revenue line, we have the expenditure line. So the Finance Bill and Finance Act is a revenue line. The expenditure line is the Appropriations Bill and subsequent Appropriations Act. And however many stories we as journalists write on the Appropriations Bill, it doesn't just seem to elicit as much interest as the finance bill and finance acts do raise. So I want to challenge us as Kenyans to be bifocal on this. Let's not just look on one side, that is the finance bill and finance, finance act. Let's also interrogate the appropriations bill and the appropriations act because that is where the expenditure side comes in and we need to ask and poke all the holes that we can
0: to ensure we streamline our finances. Eric. Very important, Julian. So I think we pay less attention to And I think it's something that is very important. So when should Kenyans maybe look out for this particular bill so that they can be able to input? I guess people pay attention more to the revenue side because it hits their pocket a lot more, but then they keep asking the expenses side, but you never seem to pay attention to this bill. Uh, When should Kenyans maybe look out out for it, Julian? Uh, Good question,
1: Eric. The National Assembly should be resuming mid-Feb. And what that means is that the first order of business will be the submission of the budget policy statement in parliament. And then uh, we have the approval set for netfair that I think is about the 28th and we shall build on from there until we get to the point where we're looking at the draft budget estimates around mid-April. Now that is where we need to start bringing in our focus because that is where we start seeing the expenditure lines and how they're coming in. And then we have the submission of the draft budget estimates, which comes in typically at the end of April in their budget calendar year. That also now is a line of focus. All these things now build into what we now call the appropriations bill. So... Kenyans need to be alert for that and focus on it so that when we are getting to around March 5th, I think that is when we get the issuance of the guidelines on ministerial budgets. I'm just looking at the calendar as we speak. And then we have the submission of the draft budget estimates on the 29th of April in parliament. Key item to capture these expenditure proposals. And finally, of course, we have the budget statement. So... That's how the flow looks like.
0: Thank you, Julian. Thank you. Uh, There's a key thing that people have been discussing this past week, and that's a depreciating Kenya shilling. And it was featured quite majorly in the IMF report also. Last year, it's depreciated by close to 27%. And then this year, we're looking at a very rapid pace of moving between 150 to 160 three almost now officially. That's quite a a move. And I come back to you, Julius. maybe you you relate to what you learned from uh, talking to the IMF representative to Kenya. But Churchill, what's your perspective on this shilling uh, and the pain that is causing, especially Kenyans? And then how how has the IMF responded to this Uh, and should we expect further depreciation going forward?
2: I think just to contextualize, when we entered the IMF program, that was around COVID period. And the fiscals all went uh, south based on the environment that was happening around that point. One of the key points that I stated from the onset was that we need to see some greater flexibility on the exchange rate. What that meant is that rather than having managed currency, or rather than letting the currency to be within some clean band in terms of the swings that it has at any given point, we need to ensure that the exchange rate now that's the Kenyan shilling reflects a bit of some market fundamentals. So that. That's what has been in play. And that's what spent the big adjustment that you saw over the course of last year. And let me just correct it. I don't think it was 27%. It was 21% because you're looking at the depreciation of the shilling. It was two percent You can flip it and say that the dollar appreciated by 27%, but that's not the same thing as saying that the shilling also depreciated by that point. So let me just make it clear. So the adjustment that you saw was in the order of 21%. Based on that, a number of things happened. We saw the restoration of the FX interbank market. So previously, what used to happen is that, uh, and this is interactions we've had from uh, people within the banking sector, was that there wasn't that oversight and there wasn't that sort of a good feel of where the supply and demand was at any given point, but now the HX, a foreign exchange interbank market, now brings all the banking sector players within one market, and then that's where you can have some visibility of the supply and demand within the whole banking system, and then you can now be able to extend uh, a similar rate to the clients. So that now pretty much led to the adjustment that played out over the course of last year. I think Kenya was the third largest weak currency. Kenya shilling was the third largest depreciating currency within the continent, but when you come within the IMF program, and this is another thing, because on one side we are hearing that the IMF is talking about exchange rates flexibility, but then on the other hand, now let me just take this discussion to the next level or some other issues, the monetary policy, whereby they sort of is acknowledging that a monetary policy stance. Is quite appropriate in the near term. But what does that mean? We've seen that the policy, the central bank rate coming from 7%, that was around May 2022, all the way to 12.5% by the end of last year. So that is quite an aggressive move. And the IMF perspective is that they want to see a, a tighter monetary policy, at least in the near future. And if I may take you back to the CBK's remarks following the rate hike last year, I think one of the key issues that stood out for me, which I haven't seen in a while, was that they were highlighting one or two factors that led to decision. I remember the December monetary policy, we saw that big, both two percentage point increase in the policy rate. And they cited because of the depreciation of the Kenyan shilling, that has now introduced or has elevated inflationary pressures in the economy. So what that meant is that as they increase the interest rates, that might now stabilize the shilling. But we haven't seen that happening. And to be sure, on a year-to-day basis so far, we've seen that the shilling has weakened by around 3%, at least as at the end of last week. So we are at a situation whereby we're seeing weakness of the shilling. But there are some pressure points that are happening right now. One is, this was a hot potato issue, uh, the G2J, which was now brought in around the time that the FX Interbank market was now being revived. I used to be able to somewhat reduce the slide in the Kenyan shilling, but that hasn't played out. And if I look at the IMF report from an analytic perspective, I'm looking at what we call the net foreign assets within the banking sector. So accounting 101, you have on one side, deposits from customers which end up in your liability side and then you have say loans that you dish out to customers which now end up in your asset side so that net foreign assets at the end of september last year it was around 261 billion kenya shillings so if you look at it convert it in dollar term that's around 1.3 billion dollars but the projection i think this is from the central bank of kenya and also the imf staff estimates they expect that by the end of this year, that net foreign asset position, which was there as at the end of September last year, will now flip to a net foreign liability by the end of this year. So what that means is that we could say from a demand side, there's more effects, but from a supply side, there's less effects just to at least to be able to bring everyone on board. So that is my main concern. And what that means is that it might be able to exacerbate the current weakness that we are seeing. If last year we saw the shilling adjusting by 21% over the course of the year, probably this year, and this is a big probably, we may not see that big move. but that is not to negate the fact that we are not running away from further currency weakness. From a more fundamental basis, I think uh, the rhetoric has been that uh, we might see from developed markets they may be able to start cutting their rates and probably that will feed into the developing markets at some point in time. But leave that aside, looking at the domestic factors, I think there are some pressure points that are still building up. To the point, because what is also the impact? Because from a monetary policy perspective, they are looking at the what you call the FX pass-through. As the Kenya shillings continues to depreciate, it means that the imports are becoming expensive, And also that sort of has some inflationary pressures within the economy. So what we have seen is that uh, from balance of trade or the current account balance is, we have seen a reduction. At at the end of 2022, we closed at 5.5%. But right now we are at a scenario whereby it have trended lower to 3.3%. It's not that we are exporting more. That's not to be sure. Because of the weakness of the shilling, we are importing less. And that's a key difference. So what I think that means, if you look at it from the broader picture, is that CBK potentially might want to have a tighter monetary policy stance, but the market is quite the fundamentals or there's a bit of some effects distortions that are not yet addressed. So as a point up until where we see, that there's a clear trend or in some stability in the FX, probably we could just see a one-way direction in the Kenya shilling. I'm speaking also from a point of an investor. I look at a number of markets. I'm still underweight in Kenya based on this particular issue. As and when I see that the currency takes a turn, at least it can make me to have some constructive view in having local assets or Local financial assets in the market. Let me just take a pause at this point. Back to you, Julian. It's a bit maybe on the depreciating shilling, and especially in the interview you did with the
0: IMF representative, Kenya. I think to quote her, she says the depreciation reflects greater role played by the exchange rate in responding to external shocks and the imbalance of payment pressures that the country is facing. And she says, it says it's a reflection of the exchange rate playing its role as a shock observer. What are your takeaways from that interview, also, and especially with regard to the depreciation of the Kenyan shilling? I think for me, uh, just to pick up from where Tachilas left, the key
1: thing was IMF is calling for better coordination between monetary policy and fiscal policy. And the idea when the IMF says we should allow the currency to act as a shock absorber is that typically, at least theory tells us, if your currency is depreciating, your exports should become a lot stronger. Therefore, you should have stronger inflows coming into the country. But Kenya is in a scenario whereby its fiscal policy seems to have inhibited realisation of outcomes from the monetary side. And let me just explain that briefly. We have the common external tariff with our neighbours at in East African community, and every so often we have Kenya, for instance, seeking safeguards on sugar imports, for example, and therefore changing its competitive nature against neighbouring countries. We have the debates we have been having around the harmonisation of tariffs of products coming into the region because we want to safeguard one industry or the other. And therefore, it negates the whole idea that you're having around let this currency play its role in terms of boosting the sort of flows you are receiving as an economy. So I think the only thing I would add to what Churchill has said is that the IMF seems to be telling us we need to have a much better coordination between the monetary arm of government and the fiscal arm so that at least outcomes yield the desired pathway in terms of stability and strengthening our economy. I think one of the things which stood out for me from the interview coming from my discussion with the IMF mission chief was, you will recall that in December last year, the executive board of the IMF agreed to temporarily tweak the limits under the PRG to the Poverty um, Reduction and Growth Trust, which is the concessional arm, which basically targets low-income countries and Kenya is still eligible for it. And my question to her was, have the government of Kenya sought to trigger access under this window? And she said, as of the last review that we've had, that is the sixth review. It hasn't emerged, but the authorities have made it very clear that this is certainly an option on the table. And the way that works is that it sends a signal that, at least from the authority side, Kenya is facing significant headwinds and considering what is being termed as the global funding squeeze, it doesn't seem like we will be able to raise the amount of capital we thought we would from the other avenues, including the commercial market. And therefore, whereas we are here talking about the largest augmentation, there could be further conversations with the fund down the road, just to ensure that at least the economy is enabled to tide through some of the heavy obligations which are coming down the road. To point that out, I think it's something which uh, has not been focused on, but it's very important because that decision was taken by the funds and equity board in December of last year.
2: Eric, just allow me to build on that point that Julian uh, has left. Uh, so there's also another update in terms of increasing the IMF quarters for member countries by 50%. So we have some allocation of what you call the in special drawing rights. So it's around uh, 642 million yeah. special drawing rights. So that is our 100% quota. So what we had earlier mentioned is that we have already surpassed our annual limits and also the cumulative limits. So with this 50% increase in the quota. In the event that Kenya exercises it, that means that we may now be able to have some fiscal space, it's the way you have your shares or deposits in circle, and then it allows you some space to borrow some multiple of what you have visited. So that's the same principle that also works with the IMF, but I'm not quite convinced that Kenya may now be able to increase its quota, at least in the near term, one, because you need to also increase your contributions so as to be able to ensure that you have some higher, at least if you are moving from 542 million SPR to say 700 million SPR, you need to also have some monies that uh, you have to contribute. But within the tight fiscal space that we are in, I don't think that Kenya will now be able to exercise that, at least within the near terms. But I think probably in the next fiscal year, they might now be able to at least increase its quota so that now it might increase its uh, funding limits In the event that once you have completed this current program, which ends in April next year, and in the event that now there's a legitimate cause of getting into another program, at least you'll be able to have some higher limits for, from the IMF.
0: Thank you uh, for those comprehensive answers. There are many questions here, and there, a lot of them have to do with the, the revenues. One is asking, what effect does taxing consumption have on aggregate demand? And I think it's been notable a couple of times that when you raise taxes on a couple of stocks, especially the fuel prices, if you raise taxes, the demand falls. What are some of your observations, Julian's, in regards to this? And how can we rectify this, especially when it comes to the Lafay
1: and that's a matter we have debated with the uh, legislators every financial year in terms of uh, the point of diminishing returns beyond which then there is no point in further raising the taxes. And I think that is the whole idea behind the MTRS coming explicitly to say, look, we need to have a conversation about having an optimal excise rate in this country. Why an optimal excise rate? One, because excise tax has been a low-hanging fruit for the government. I think ever since Finance Act 2016, one of the areas which has really been targeted for revenue-raising measures, excise on betting, excise on financial service, and excise on alcoholic beverages and tobacco products. The only breather we have seen for those uh, spaces, and notably for tobacco and alcoholic beverages was in the Finance Act 2020. I think the government has gone to a point where it's appreciating that, look, we seem to have maxed out in terms of revenue raising capabilities. And that is why the conversation needs to be had around an optimal excise rate. And if you read the MTRS, FY2425 will be for conducting a study on how to arrive at this optimal excise rate. We certainly wait to see how this will be done. My sense is it will be varied across various sectors and various players. So with the way, it the way it applies in alcoholic beverages will be starkly different from the way it does for tobacco. We have seen a conversation being had around the need to have a flat rate in the betting sector. Because currently, you are in the betting space. You pay corporate tax. You pay excise duty. You pay withholding tax. And also, you're paying a bit of VAT. So it's, it's a bit of um, a convoluted space there. And there's been the conversation around the need for a flat tax rate, which just applies. For that space. So I think that's how I would look at it. I think the government has taken cognizance of the fact that uh, this periodic hiking of uh, consumption tax is having a very detrimental impact on consumption and therefore the revenue performance at the end of the day.
2: Eric. Anything to add there? Uh, I think uh Jillian's is in laboratory now. Thanks. And in terms of going to markets, uh, Julian, I just saw your post on
0: Codiva going into the market this year. Does that mean that we can expect more countries, at least Kenya, to be able to maybe raise a Eurobond later this year? And then... Our second question: Are uh, the issue of governments do a lot of refinancing, so it's a issue one bond is maturing, they take up another one to pay off that one. So I think there's a, a question now on Twitter. Who's wondering when does this cycle ever stop, Julian? That's a good question. When does this cycle
1: never stop? I think that leave that to touch But in terms of the accessibility of the markets, I think my sense is that uh, the markets still remain significantly prohibited in terms of the ability of economies to return to raise. And I think more significantly for Kenya because. This This year, I could be wrong. I don't know what Churchill's sense is. We could potentially be having the largest maturity among frontier markets, 2 billion. And of course, everyone is on tenterhooks as to how this will pan out when it comes to June 24th, 2024. I have said it before, and I hope I am right, that in my view, Kenya's risk of default on this euro bond is overstated. But that's a conversation, I guess, for another day. And my view is that right now, our best card on the table is sessional financing from the multilaterals. And that's what we are seeing coming through. And uh, I think that's our best bet. We wait to see what comes out of Cote d'Ivoire. What we have seen is just the initial offer document. Not too much detail in it, but we wait to see how the pricing and the quantum they asked for mm-hmm. will look like. Churchill, over to you.
0: As you respond also, there's someone here asking what's your best economic advice as the dollar marathons to 200. Eric, okay, I think that's your question. You're such a <laughs> clever browser.
2: <laughs> i to put you on the spot. Okay, to keep on going. There's a book I read. I think it was uh, Oliver Trudeau. Ask no more questions and to be told no lies. So let me pause at that point in regards to expectations or the runaway ship on the Kenyan kind of shillings to the dollar. But then again, on the refinancing, folks, let me take you back to May 2019. So in June 2014, we had two trends. We had a five year Euro bond, that 10 year Euro bond. So the 10 year Euro bond that you issued back in 2014, that is what uh, is our headache right now, $2 billion. But earlier on, the five-year Eurobond matured, and that was in June 20, 2019. But a month earlier, uh, Kenya now went and issued two euro bonds. One was uh, $1.2 billion, which is maturing around 2032. And then the other one was around $900 million, which is maturing in 2027. So cumulatively, Kenya borrowed $2.1 billion, of which it part of the process of that dual tranche euro bonds. It was now able to refinance the $750 million that was coming due. So 2020, COVID happens, rates have gone where they are, Ukraine, Russia war happens, and here we are at a scenario whereby we are looking at billion billion. And as uh, Julian had mentioned, I think this is the largest single maturity amongst African issuers. I know Egypt has three or four maturities over the course of this year coming to around Lately over $3 billion, but in terms of the maturity size, this $2 billion is the largest amongst African issuers. So it's, that's where the focus has been on Kenya. But I also think that the default risk has been quite overplayed. From a worst case scenario, it's just easy as tapping into the FX reserves, just blowing down and then find ways of rebuilding it. So that's what is uh, happening right now, getting more not multinational financing as possible the, from the IMF we had augmentation uh, so we had the disbursement that came out uh, which was around 110 billion uh, in over the course of last week and then by around May or June we'll get another round of disbursement from the IMF we also have a trade and development bank issuing some syndicated loan over the course of this financial year it should be around $500 million. And also we have a World Bank development policy operation, which should be disbursed by around March. So effort is now at least to be able to get increased multilateral financing so as to be able to ensure that the government has a powder keg, at least to be able to service this maturity. But ordinarily, refinancing usually happens. And take a step back and look at even the weekly T-bills maturities, uh, T-bills issuances. Part of the proceeds goes towards recurring the TBS that are maturing that particular week. And also on a monthly basis, this month's bond issuance, there was a new three-year paper, and then there was a reopening of a five-year paper. And the same month, there was a 35 billion that was maturing. And also next month, we have 65 billion that is maturing. So just to hazard a guess, the bond that will be issued in all likelihood, part of the proceeds will channel towards Refinancing or retiring that maturing treasury bond. So that is still a similar case with international markets. It's only that the financial conditions are quite tight. Yes, we have a glimmer of hope with Ivory Coast issuing a prospective euro bond. I think there will be two bonds. One of them will be a sustainability bond, whereby just trying to find or linking projects that are quite sustainable with green projects or climate financing. And also another longer bond will now be issued. So there'll be two euro bonds that they are trying to solicit interest from investors currently. But at the same time, also, they want to do what you call liability management. So based on what the target amount they'll be able to get from investors over the course of the shows that they'll be doing, I think over the course of this week, they have identified a euro bond that is maturing next year, which is around $200 million euros, which they also plan now to reduce that maturity risk. So that's pretty much the conversation or the scenario that Kenya is contending. Initially, we had different variations of buyback. I think the none other than the president told us that they could be around $1 billion buyback by the end of uh, December. That was in July. We had another variation that will be $500 million buyback by first quarter of this a year. And then we also had the president also saying uh within the context of the state of the nation address that this three hundred million dollars bond that will be exercised by December, which didn't pan out. So it all depends with the financial conditions. And I think it's just a wait and see. But I think in all measures, the default risk has been quite amplified. I think we may be able to jump that through or muddle through the these five months that are remaining. And then after that, I think it's now probably could see some return to normalcy as, uh, uh, as the overarching theme of the question. So back to you, Eric. I' oh, have yeah. been going for almost
0: one and a half hours, so I think it should be Good to give you time to give us some closing thoughts and especially on the way forward, and perhaps where people can find you also in terms of, uh, if they want to engage you further, I know you guys are very active on Twitter. Perhaps I can start with Julius, Uh, you can give us maybe anything that you may have missed first of all, so far and not covered, and and especially on what Kenyans can look forward to and the finance bill going forward 2024. And then you can give us your closing thoughts on that. Thank you so much, Eric.
1: And thank you, Mwango, And thank you to all our listeners for fielding very good questions. I think my take home is this country has been talking about widening the tax nets. Every financial year, I have been conscious, at least covering as an analyst and coming into the broadcast side. And sometimes I say the whiplash that treasury receives when proposals are tabled. And I wonder how we expected that this tax net would be wide. So as we get into this budgeting cycle, and especially looking at the proposals which come forth, I think it's important to be very objective in how we assess the proposals being tabled. And more importantly, we have focused so much on the Eurobond, but I think when June 24th, 2024 comes here and my views will be such an anticlimax climax because the payment will have been made and we just move on. The question we should now seriously ask ourselves. Is about domestic debt and the contingent liability attached to pending bills. Because that, if you ask me, is where the real nightmare is. In F1 2425, for the first time, our domestic redemptions will have crossed the 500 billion shillings mark. I think I will just leave it at that point and now all of us to take that in. Thank you, Eric.
2: Chachilli, one of the things that I missed out is uh, from Dick Dixon's question is, By all intent, the medium-term revenue strategy is meant to be like a a document that is cast in stone, but yet on the flip side of it, we have each and every year, there's some spending plans uh, that comes in within the context of the medium-term expenditure framework, which now uh, gives back eventually to the appropriation bills. But remember, if you have a medium-term revenue strategy, which gives visibility of how the tax measures will be over the course of the three years... At least that's been cast in stone. By and on the other hand, we have on the spending side, that's where the elephant in the room is, whereby it keeps on changing. We are looking at a second supplementary budget in this current financial year, and it's normally the norm that we have our budgets, but then there are some supplementary budgets along the way. Most of these supplementary budgets are quite expansionary, meaning that they result in higher spending plans that was initially budgeted for. And the policy implication is either we, if we have a revenue plan that it's somewhat cast in stone, and that means that borrowing will now take the heavy lifting because of that scenario. So potentially, you could see, from the government perspective, they need to improve on having at least a much more robust medium-term expenditure framework, which doesn't change significantly within a course of three years, or even within the financial year, so as to be able to ensure that these targets that they are looking on the revenue-raising side, they'll be able to make. So that is one. The other thing also, uh, I think it sounds as a broken record, is that even within the context of IMF financing, even within the context of the spending, we still don't have an overview of a fourth medium-term plan. So we have, since independence, or since 1964, we've been having development plans all at least five years, three years, all the way up until 1999. And then from there, 2003, we had economic recovery strategy on the back of Wachibaki coming into power. And then from 2008, we've had a vision plan, which is implemented within five years. So we are at a scenario whereby uh, we don't have a sight of what are the overarching expenditure plans for the fourth medium-term plan. So it's something that has been kept in secret for, I don't know why, but at least we need to see in the current administration, what are the priority plans so that we now can be able to measure, with all these expenditure plans that come in. So I think by and large, uh, in as much as the focus has been on revenue, the elephant in the room is on spending, which we need to see much more focus on. Definitely, we saw the special audit on supplementary budget efficacy. Sometime last year, potentially we could see a much more a solid report by a National Assembly when they come from their long recess, coming up with or beefing up some of the recommendations. And then that might be able to seal some of the loopholes that we normally see. So I think the two go hand in hand at least to ensure that as we focus on revenue, also we may be able to tighten the loopholes on the spending side. Thanks. Thank you so much, Churchill. Thanks, Julian. It's so grateful that you
0: took the time to come and break down for us what some the expectations are from the IMF report, at least the takeaways. There's a lot of information coming down the pipeline between now and especially in June, as we head towards the Finance Bill 2024. So pay attention a lot to Julian's timeline and Churchill's also as they release a lot of information with regards to this and uh, engage with them also in this context uh, because some of the things that you've discussed here will feature in the finance bill 2024 and the appropriations bill that's going to come thereafter also. So pay attention to that. So thank you, Julian. Thank you, Churchill. We hope to have you again soon to break down for a small report. For now, I'd say Santeni, and see you again soon for another Mwango Spaces.